word. I'm gonna say the word. In the beginning was the word. What? Word. 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 Was the word. From the studios of KJZZ in Phoenix, Arizona, welcome to Word, a podcast about literature. Here's your host, Tom Maxidon. Coming up on this episode of Word, New York Times bestseller J.A. Jantz offers a new novel about a murdered indigenous woman. In the case of my book, this is a serial killer who targets young women who are involved in barrel racing. Plus, Chuck Palahniuk brings us a horror satire of cozy mysteries. This book is two guys in a big house doing it. This book is every gothic novel I've ever loved. But first, we examine the horror of banning books. Ban Books Week happens the first week of October. It's an annual campaign conducted by the American Library Association to bring awareness about demands to censor library books and resources. In 2022, the organization's Office for Intellectual Freedom documented nearly 1,300 examples of such. That's the highest number of attempted book bans since the ALA began compiling data about censorship in libraries more than 20 years ago. And while the thought of such is horrific, our first guest is author Karu Papritz, who lives just south of Tucson. He believes there's an ironic twist to people trying to ban books. That's where we started our recent convo. I have to tell you, Tom, here's where I come down on all of this. And it was a bit of an epiphany because as a writer, am I naturally offended by it? Absolutely. But it dawned on me in one moment that banning books is the greatest marketing scheme to get kids to read books in a long time. (laughs) And I'm glad you laughed because I tell you what, that's what I wanted. I just... Kill them with kindness, right? And kill them with laughter. I'll tell you what. So you, so let's go on the basic premise. You tell a kid they can't do something, and what's the response? Don't touch that hot stove. Well, please, you're just begging the kid to touch the stove, unless you're able to talk with them and reason with them about, you know, why you shouldn't touch the stove. So my theory is, is that you tell kids that these are books that their parents don't want them to read, and guess what? They'll want to read them. I know it's tongue in cheek and there's, but there's a grain of truth to it. And maybe the whole marketing of books to kids should be books. Your parents don't want you to read. And that would seal the deal. (laughs) Right. But look at this 1984 became a bestseller again because it was banned. Right. So I almost want to say, and I guess I'm saying it, please ban my book, the legacy letters, because it'll become a bestseller again. Well, I also feel like, to be quite honest, people calling for bans are in the minority. But what's interesting as well is their demands for censorship, at least in the most recent numbers, according to the ALA, were largely targeted at materials that were written by or about members of the LGBTQ community or by and about black people indigenous people and people of color in general. And I think that says something about the groups that are being targeted. What might it say to you? We're having trouble getting kids to read in the first place. I mean, the more taboo you make it, the more likely they'll search it out on the internet. Because if, if nature abhors a vacuum, then curiosity abhors knowledge that's locked up. And so of course, it comes down to liberty and the freedom to decide one owns destiny about what one wants to learn and understand what one wants to know. Yeah, and I also feel like a lot of people who are pushing these bans have never actually read 
these books. <laughs> I mean, Sean. you know, oh my gosh, again, yeah. it's like, as you say, something's catching fire virtually online yes. on social media. And I, I feel that's certainly the case. And I'm glad you illustrated that point, alluding to the point of monitoring their kids' activity online. I feel like they probably don't do that very much at all either. But the idea of banning books would have been anathema to my parents. Now, that doesn't mean that they wouldn't have guided me. But for the most part, there's nothing that I ever wanted to check out that they didn't let me do so. I don't know about what your growing up was like. Pretty much the same way. I mean, of course, if you're brought up in a book reading family, that's the whole idea about that. But I think, Tom, for me, Liberty is about the freedom to decide one owns destiny. I'm talking about the, um, what's the group? It's at Moms for Liberty, right? But we now have book banners apparently telling us what they think we should read. And I call that finger-wagging liberty. Okay, we know what's best and we're going to decide what's best for you. And freedom is not about taking one's choice away. It's about giving more choices. And that's the beauty. And that's trusting us to figure it out. So I guess they're afraid of people making their own decisions. And I know we're all scared of change, but guess what? That's the only real constant in life. And guys, you, you might as well push back against the ocean as to try to stop change. And hit, this is part of change, but you can get ahead of it as a parent. You can converse with your kids. You can talk with them about it, but to try to stymie it, to try to shove knowledge back into hole like it doesn't exist or rewrite history, eh, ain't working for me. Well, Karu, I want to thank you so much for coming to Word and talking to us a little bit. Tom, it's a pleasure. Anytime. I sure appreciate it. And guys out there, trust your kids to explore, to be curious. That's the most fantastic form of liberty at all. And talk to them. I mean, that's what kids want. It's a great opportunity to talk to your kids, not only about reading, but about learning. You can find out a bit more about Carew Papritz on our website, word.kjzz.org. Coming up, the murder of an indigenous woman is the subject of a new mystery by New York Times bestseller J.A. Jans. I'm Tom Maxidon, and you're listening to Word, a KJZZ podcast about literature. In an era of behavioral health challenges, including addiction, there's a need for informed, compassionate providers. Rio Salado College is offering full scholarships in behavioral health programs. More information at riosalado.edu slash better tomorrow. Did you know two out of every three NPR listeners prefer to purchase products and services from public radio sponsors? You can see the benefits of becoming a KJZZ corporate sponsor at sponsor.kjzz.org. Looking for a new podcast? KJZZ has original podcasts on all sorts of topics, like the new series called Period The End. It's a series about a chapter of life that can be gut-wrenching, exhausting, and confusing. It's about menopause, and half the nation will go through it. You can download great storytelling at podcasts.kjzz.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Word. I'm Tom Maxidon. J.A. Jantz has a new murder mystery about the death of an indigenous woman. It's called Blessing of the Lost Girls, and it's part of her Brady and Walker family series. Jantz has intrigued readers for decades. I started writing my first mystery in March of 1983, so I've been writing at a rate of 1.6 books a year for 40 years. How do you keep up that pace? How does it not get boring? It doesn't get boring because I have four different series, 
four different sets of characters, moving from one set to another set keeps me interested and it keeps it fresh. And this new novel, Blessing of the Lost Girls, would you describe it as more of a traditional mystery or, you know, like a cozy? Because cozies are really popular these days. My books are definitely not cozies. My books are more police procedurals than they are cozy. I wanted to highlight a story that KJZZ, our Fronteras desk editor and reporter Michelle Marisco, posted earlier this month. It was about Jamie Yazia, Navajo mother of three, who went missing in 2019. And it would be two years before her remains were found. Those remains were recently returned to Arizona. And a trial in her case wrapped in late September with a murder conviction. Good. Your new novel centers on a missing Apache woman. Can you tell us a little bit about her? She's from the San Carlos Apache. She was working in Tucson when she disappeared. In when she was younger, she was a barrel racer. Joanna Brady, who is my Cochise County Sheriff, Joanna Brady's daughter, Jenny, actually competed against her in one of the previous Joanna Brady books. Don't ask me which one because I can't remember. <laughs> I just know I just know she did. She disappears. Her charred human remains are found inside Joanna's jurisdiction. And at the time I wrote this book, it was impossible to get a DNA profile from charred human remains. In the aftermath of the fires on Maui, it is now possible. So that's how fast forensic science has changed. But once she is identified, that puts her into the world of the walkers because Brandon Walker from the first book, his son-in-law, Dan Pardee, is now working for a task force assigned to deal with missing and murdered Indigenous people. And eventually, Joanna's daughter, Jenny, who is a senior at NAU, is drawn into the investigation because of her connection with that initial victim. And the victim is Rosa Rios from Cochise County. Yes. Why did you choose this as the plot? Because I think it's very important. Because at this point, on the Tohono Autumn, according to law enforcement, 12 women and girls are missing. According to another source of investigation, 20 are missing. And that's with a population of, what, 20,000? That's too many girls. That's too many missing women. That's too many crimes that are being under-investigated. And I wanted to bring that to the attention. On those cold cases, it turns out that if even a modicum of investigation is applied, those cases are actually solvable. In the case of my book, this is a serial killer who targets young women who are involved in barrel racing. I want to go back to something that you said about it turns out if, you know, just a little bit more information could have been provided or people could have looked into these missing women sooner rather than later, the crimes could have been solved. Or if at all. In Montana, it's amazing how many young women just go out in the cold and snow without any clothes on and just die accidentally of exposure. I'm sorry, those aren't accidents. 
those are cases that need to be investigated. So I'm I'm really hot on this issue. I'm sorry. Oh, no. And I wanted to ask, because of your experience in researching this topic, what are the roadblocks that people present as perceived roadblocks as to why so many of these crimes oh. go unsolved? For one thing, there is a jurisdictional nightmare. Is the disappearance going to be investigated by the tribal law enforcement, by county law enforcement, or by the FBI? And everybody passes the buck in the long run of things, nothing happens. You include a chart at the outset, which shows how characters are connected in the book. And I think that that's really helpful. Was that uh, something that was an editorial decision or was that your own? Actually, that chart is a family tree of all six of the Walker books, starting with Hour of the Hunter, which was published in 1990, and coming forward to Blessing. And that actually was done by a fan of mine. Oh, and wow. published in Blessing with her permission. That's cool that you're able to uh, sort of get interactive. I'd like to talk about one character in the book, Chairman. Chairman is based on a man who was a victim of a serial killer, called the Boxcar Killer, who roamed the West in the 1990s. He's currently serving life without parole, I believe, on five counts of homicide, but he pushed people under moving trains. In the case of James, a Lakota working in a small community in Oregon, he was pushed under a train, dragged for a mile and a half. Law enforcement was summoned. He was pronounced dead, zipped into a body bag, hauled off to the morgue. But it turns out he wasn't dead. When a nurse oh, who was also went down that night to wash his hair, they discovered he was alive. He was stitched back together eventually with multiple surgeries, multiple hospital stays. And during that time, when he had to learn to speak and read again, one of my fans read the Walker books to him. In real life, he spent 20 years counseling disaffected Indian youth in the Portland area. But shortly before his death in 2021, James called my friend and told her, tell your friend to write more Walker books. There aren't enough Indian heroes. And Blessing of the Lost Girls is the book I wrote as a result of that charge from James in Portland. Blessing of the Lost Girls is the latest from J.A. Jance. Thank you so much for coming to Word and talking to us. You're welcome. You can find out a bit more about J.A. Jance on our website, word.kjzz.org. Coming up, a horror satire of the cozy subgenre of mystery written in the British idiom, and it's the latest from Chuck Palahniuk. I'm Tom Maxidon, and you're listening to Word, a KJZZ podcast about literature. Have you heard about Classical Next? KBOX Classical Next is highlighting the most talented young musicians in our community. Does your student sing, play piano, or perform in an ensemble? Are they between the ages of 7 and 13? Nominate them now for Classical Next at kbox.org. 
Football season is here, and that means tailgating time. If your tailgate doesn't function like it used to, consider donating that SUV or pickup to the KJZZ Vehicle Donation Program and support the programs you love. Find out more at cars.kjzz.org. So what do you want to do this weekend? Maybe get some help from KJZZ's Hotspots. It's a weekly text with some of the best ideas for what to do this weekend, curated by KJZZ. Whether you're an introvert, an extrovert, or feeling a bit wild, we've got you covered. So sign up at hotspots.kjzz.org. Welcome back to Word. I'm Tom Maxidon. Our final guest on this episode is Chuck Polinick. In September, he made an appearance at a Valley bookseller to promote his latest, a horror satire of the cozy mystery subgenre titled Not Forever, But For Now. And on the day of the event, he made a beeline from Sky Harbor to the KJZZ studios prior to his appearance. First off, thanks so much for doing this. Not a lot of people like to get off a plane and hop in a studio, but appreciate you accommodating us. Ah, thank you. You are prolific. I mean, over a dozen novels, I've read a lot of them. Does that blow you away if you put that many words on the page? No, because I am kind of compulsive in everything I do, including drinking. And if I wrote as many novels as I drank drinks, I would have a Stephen King level of novels. (laughs) I'm glad you mentioned that because I was going to ask, are you a person that wants to write or do you need to write? Uh, We landed in Houston once and we were signing stock and there was a young woman helping me. And apropos of nothing, she said, what's your Zodiac? I said, Pisces. And she said, oh, the one water sign that doesn't have a shell. And I was devastated because writing is my shell. Hmm. Writing is that thing that I keep you know, from going nuts. Are you a person who keeps an actual daily handwritten journal? Are you on your notes on a smartphone? What's your day-to-day creative process? I always use spiral notebooks. I brought three notebooks on this book tour. And by the time I get home, those three spiral notebooks will be filled with scribblings. Let's take a look at the new book, Not Forever, But For Now. One of the things, of course, that you always see on dust jackets are people who put down words on your behalf, some kudos. And a number of them I agree with. They're from publications like the New York Times, Vanity Fair, San Francisco Chronicle. But this one from USA Today really struck me, that your literature is a breed all its own. What do you make of that? Yeah, it's hard to say. I'm one of the few writers that is writing in a style called minimalism that was enormously popular in the 1980s. This is kind of billed as a horror satire. I would also call it a murder mystery, but not in the classic sense, in that we know right away who the murderers are. We're trying to figure out their motivation through the entire book, however, and it centers on two Welsh brothers, Otto and Cecil. The story is told through Cecil's point of view. And the irony is that a couple winters ago, I bought a whole stack of cozy mysteries. Do you know what those are? These are softer mysteries? Is that a way to describe it? It doesn't get any softer. These are mysteries in which someone is butchered in an English country town, and suddenly some very unlikely detective like a Miss Marple has to solve the mystery. It is the most sort of little old lady mystery, and they're enormously popular. And I thought I would try to write one, so I read a stack of these while it was snowing. And I hated them all. (laughs) But I wanted to adopt all of the conventions of the cozy and then write something really outlandish. 
you spin Murder, She Wrote with Angela Lansbury on its head, right? That is exactly what a cozy is. <laughs> your imagery is so rich uh, in your writing. Two senses that I think you really appealed to, certainly visual firstly, but olfactory as well, which is not very common often in writing. You know, it's, since I began writing, um, smells have been really big because they are such a way of not just evoking memory, but they're also a way of getting in under the radar and verbs get in under the radar. People are kind of hypnotized by verbs and by smells. And so I try to use them constantly. I try to avoid dialogue because if you look at studies, very, very little is actually communicated through dialogue. So I use everything else. Tell me more about that. I'm not aware. Years ago, a reader sent me a clipping from the, uh, I believe it was UCLA. It was a big study that seemed to prove that of everything communicated between people in conversation, 87% of it was not said in words. It was body language, expression. It was tone of voice. It was volume. But really, maybe 13% was actually communicated through the words themselves. The book starts out in the opening scene with the two main characters, Otto and Cecil, who narrates the story. And they're watching a nature documentary that's voiced by Sir Attenborough. And of course, most people see that name. They hear the voice, which you describe, was whispering off to the side. But certainly the presentation of him is counterintuitive <laughs> to what some might think of him as he's narrating this documentary. Where did you come up with that? You know, growing up, those documentaries were just so ubiquitous everywhere on television. And we were latchkey kids, so you got home from school and you just turned the TV on and it was on until mom and dad came home. And there was always a sequence in which a baby animal was going to be menaced by a bunch of predators. And as a child, to watch an animal child try to hide or escape or eventually be destroyed right there in front of you was enormously upsetting. And our hearts would be in our throats. And I wanted to revisit that because I don't have kids, so I don't get to revisit my developmental stages as I watch my kids. I have to constantly be looking at the world and trying to revisit those things I decided and those things that, that really made an impression on me. The description that you utilized at the outset, it makes an impression on a lot of people because Attenborough is narrating the birth of a baby Joey and its climb toward its mother's pouch. And I have seen that documentary, and I got to say, it affected me in the same way. You know, it's kind of like a car crash. When people go by, they crane their neck at it. We, as humans, are attracted to that, and you sort of pick up on this oh, well, you know, this is nature. Everything's beautiful in nature. And this is why we have this documentary. But it's often not so beautiful. <laughs> you know, I I wouldn't remember it if it wasn't incredibly stressful and um, fascinating to watch. You know, there seemed to be so much at stake. And for little kids who are so worried about how they themselves are going to try to make it to adulthood, to see this tiny creature climbing the fur and possibly dropping off and just dying in the dirt. Uh, that's what I wanted. I want to pick up on some quotes that really stood out to me. You talk about a law of ever-diminishing margin of returns, 
weaved into this predator prey metaphor that continues throughout the book. But then also you deal a lot with notions of outdated modes of the past being still sort of omnipresent, particularly this murderous family who's upper crust taking out the little guy. In a way, it's Cecil is a younger brother uh, who just adores his older brother because metaphorically, I wanted to write about how Americans just adore Great Britain and that kind of warts and all way. And when Downton Abbey is on, we are just glued to our sets so we can watch someone iron sheets. (laughs) Why is that? Because you're exactly right. I mean, like, often a lot of us are obsessed by the royals. You know... It's, it might, I'm just going to Heidegger it. It's, it's, it's a thrownness. It's some, you know, possibly genetic cultural thrownness. And, and it might be something we'll never understand, or it might just be that Great Britain is bound around longer. But I also wanted to write a novel about empire and how yes. we don't really recognize when we watch Upstairs, Downstairs, or Downton Abbey. We're watching a tiny, tiny number of people whose lives depend on the suffering uh, and the hardship of enormous numbers of people. And so that is kind of the underlying metaphor of the entire book. Right, this power of legacy and how the upper class get away often, literally with murder. And how these two little boys are resisting being pulled into taking their place in the empire. You also write, Our crude ancestors want to see us seize the reins of power. We're bright young things. And no bright young thing wants to squander his life as a custodian of the dead. God, that's beautiful. And they say this as they're burning down an enormous baronial manor house, because they are very actively at this point pushing back against this this legacy, because if they accept a legacy, they're merely perpetuating this thing that they don't even want to be part of, and their lives are over. But if they can destroy this thing, then they might have a chance at a real life. I love what I feel are overtones of gothic vampirism, of course, Frankenstein, Jack the Ripper, but of gay men. You know, this book is Brideshead Revisited, two guys in a big house doing it. This book is We've Always Lived in the Castle, Eaten Things. This book is every gothic novel I've ever loved. Well, Chuck, it's been great to catch up. And I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for coming to Word and talking to us. Tom, thank you very much. You can find out a bit more about Chuck Polinick and his new novel, Not Forever But For Now, on our website, word.kjzz.org. We hope you enjoyed this episode, and we're back with another one on October 31st. In the meantime, if you missed KJZZ's new member drive, there's still time to become one. Give a gift in whatever amount fits your budget, maybe that's $5, 10 or $15 a month, and help support original programming from KJZZ News, original podcasts, and also the fact-based news and information that you expect from KJZZ 365 days a year. You can make that gift online at kjzz.org, and thanks so much for supporting public radio. In the meantime, you can follow Word on KJZZ's social media, And don't forget to enter our literary-themed Halloween costume contest with prizes in both kids' and adults' categories. Episodes of Word are available on multiple platforms, including the NPR pod feed and also now YouTube. I'm Tom Maxidon, and thanks so much for listening to Word. 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 Word.
was the word. Thanks for listening to Word, a KJZZ podcast about literature. You can find all episodes online at word.kjzz.org or wherever you get your podcasts.